So I am frequently asked, what kind of a church is Grace Point? Generally, when people ask that question, uh, they're wondering uh, about our theo theological identity. Are you Catholic? Are you Protestant? Episcopal? Methodist? Baptist? Pentecostal? Nazarene? Church of Christ? Lutheran? Presbyterian? Interesting. Let's do a, a little survey here. Um, raised Catholic or at one point in your life with Catholic? Hands up. Wow. Um, Episcopal, Anglican. Oh, got some Anglophiles in here. Um, Methodist. This reminds me of the little boy who said, um, we're Presbyterian, what abomination are you? Um, Baptist. Yeah, I always say there's a phenomena in Nashville, Tennessee. There are actually more Baptists than there are people. We don't know how it works, <laughs> but it's, it's really an odd thing. Um, Pentecostal background, charismatic. Nazarene. Oh, Jesus the Nazarene. You have one hymn in the hymnal, right? That's your, your song. Church of Christ, non-fiddle playing Camelites. Presbyterian, um, conservative Presbyterian, liberal Presbyterian, yeah. Um, so people, it's interesting being an inter interdenominational church, but when people ask that question, what kind of church is Grace Point, they're generally asking, are you conservative, moderate, liberal, progressive, all those words that kind of bore us at some point. Are you, back in the evangelical days, are you post-millennial, amillennial, or pre-millennial? Remember that, when that mattered, right? Um, are you charismatic or non-charismatic? Liturgical in the style of service, or evangelical, or spirit-filled. I love that phrase, spirit-filled, right? Spirit-filled, as, as though some Christians aren't spirit-filled and others are. Um, is it an elder-run place, a pastor-led place, or a congregational place in its polity? Is it missions-focused, service-focused, interlife-focused? People ask the question, uh, what kind of a church is Grace Point? And I'm sure you get that question too. And the reality is when you have something good, and I think we have something good here, you want to share it. And Grace Point, uh, in its goodness, is naturally something all of us want to share. And I have frequently had people say here, you know, we're kind of hard to describe. Now, I don't feel like we're hard to describe because I've been doing this 14 years and it's just kind of wrote for me and it's, in, it's just a part of me. But I, I get that a lot of you have said, I just wish we had an elevator speech. I wish that I could, you, you remember the days, if you grew up Baptist or Church of Christ, you could generally explain who you were to people when they ask you what kind of church you are. We have been batting around some uh, ideas as a staff for the last few months and we're working on coming up with a new identity statement for Grace Point and it's, it's I think nearing completion but the first four stanzas of that I think there's one more stanza that we need to create but the first four stanzas read something like this Grace Point is a progressive inclusive interdenominational church I remember when interdenominational began to be all the rage as a term because non-denominational sounded like it was kind of dissing on denomination. We're anti-denomination, which we're certainly not. 
So we, we decided to come up with a new word, an interdenominational. That means we come together and we don't just tolerate our differences, but we celebrate them. We learn from one another and we bring strengths because basically every denomination uh, broke off with some, with some idea, something that was important to them that maybe they felt the rest of the church, and some, to some extent this is often true, the rest of the church was not denying but was just ignoring or was being slack on. So there's a lot to learn from denominations as we come back together and we pull our strings together. Interdenominational itself is a great word. If you, if you lack for a big word, think about it. Interdenominational. You have an eight-syllable word in your vocabulary. And then if you get to playing with it, interdenominationalism is a ten-syllable word. Now you're really smart if you say interdenominationalism. And then one step further, the other day I was talking to somebody, Roy, and I said, well, interdenominationalistically speaking, now I know that's probably not in the dictionary, but if you hold your mouth right, people believe it when you say it. But interdenominationalistically, 12 syllables. That gets you up there with anti-disestablishmentarianism. Remember that one from first grade? So if you're interdenominationalistically speaking, you are in a really smart church. Um, all right, so I digress. But the question before us is how would we describe um, our church to someone? And, and when we were thinking about this, I, you know, I think that there are four concepts really at the heart of what it means to be a progressive, interdenominational, inclusive church. And I want to talk them through with you. And I want to take maybe till about 10 after somebody shoot up a flare about 10 after because I want us to do a little bit of what we do on Wednesday night and that's a midrash and I want to um, discourse a little bit with you as a congregation so you might be thinking about questions or comments that you want to make but there are there are four central concerns that I want us to address in this series as we kind of think about who we are the first is what we're talking about when we talk about God the second is what we are talking about when we talk about the person Jesus Christ uh, the third is what we're talking about when we talk about the idea of God communicating, and specifically, what are we talking about when we talk about the Bible? Um, I, I'm reminded quite often, and I've said this frequently, this is not the Jesus belt nor the God belt, this is the Bible belt. And the Bible often is the, uh, the battleground for people as they're wrestling through their concepts of life, their worldview, their vision of God. So I... I I think the Bible is an incredibly important part of this. So what we're talking about when we talk about God, Jesus Christ, the Bible, and then fourth, the final week, I want to talk about the church. What do we mean when we talk about the church? Those four things, I think, will give us a good summary and a good understanding. And hopefully by the end of the series, we might all of us be able to have a comfortable elevator speech that we could share with our friends and neighbors. And I don't mean that um, to, to dumb this down but something pithy that is explainable and that makes us feel good that we're all kind of talking about the same place. So let's talk about God. Let's talk about the concept of God a little bit and how Grace Point um, has generally established or how Grace Point feels about this concept of God. Years ago, I came up with an analogy, and some of you who've been around for a while have heard this analogy, but um, I one day, whether it was a supernatural, supernal vision or not, I, I don't know. But in my thinking, I just had this picture of a large mountain. And this mountain was a mountain that was variously referred to in my mind as I saw the vision, the mountain of mystery, 
the mountain of reality, the mountain of, as William James called it, the mountain of isness, uh, the mountain, some would say, of God. So there's this majestic mountain, and I grew up in a little Pentecostal denomination that was very certain that we had the truth. A lot of you come from denominations that use that phrase, we had the truth. Independent Fundamental Baptist, Church of Christ, some Pentecostal groups, especially um, Catholics even, really lay claim to this idea that we have the truth. And maybe even that even other people who claim to be Christians really aren't Christians, uh, but if they are Christians, they're kind of second-class citizens because their variation of the truth isn't quite as captured and succinct as ours. So in our little denomination, we were quite sure, as I saw this mountain, we were quite sure that we had laid claim to the top of the mountain called Revelation and God. And we had laid such claim to it that we had almost like you know, a country on the moon, we had put our flag at the top of that mountain and that territory was ours and everyone else was striving to come to that level of revelation that we possessed. And then at some point in my life, and it probably wasn't an instantaneous thing, it probably happened over a period of time, the winds of life and exposure and experience and interaction with people and the reading of books through a combination of experiences over a course of time, the winds of providence begin to blow. And the clouds that settled around the peak of that mountain begin to dissipate. And I remember the shock that I felt in my mid-twenties as those clouds begin to dissipate and as they dissipated and were removed, it was revealed to me that the space of ground we were occupying was not the top of the mountain. As a matter of fact, it was a long way from the top of the mountain. As the clouds cleared and I was forced by life to look up, not only were we not at the top of the mountain, the mountain stretched infinitely into the sky above me. And what we had considered, what we had thought to be the top of the mountain was Elka, it was just an outcropping on the side of the mountain a few hundred yards up. And this zenith, this ultimate revelation that we thought we had been given now came into question for me as not only I realized we were not at the top of this mountain, we had not exhausted the idea of God, we had not gotten the perfect revelation, but as the clouds cleared, not only did I see vertically this infinite mountain, but I began to look and all over the side of this mountain were other religious groups like us who had on their own outcropping suspected that they were at the top of the mountain. And there were flags all over the side of the mountain, different religions, different denominations, everyone laying claim to that space at the top. And as I realized this, I remember as a young man in my 20s, it so discombobulated me and disoriented me that my firm footing entrenched in that outcropping, I, I, I lost, and little by little I began to slide down the mountain. Anybody ever done that? It's called deconstruction. And it's, it's really tough as you begin to slide down the mountain, and, and for a while you're clawing and scratching and trying, Craig, to get a hold of it and, and, and hang on, but often many of us fall all the way down to the bottom to that place where we no longer even know what we believe, and we're not sure we believe anything and it's a disorienting time. Well, at the base of that mountain, that was an insufferable thing for me because I had learned to live 
on the mountain. I had learned to live expecting that the most important thing was to get to the top of the mountain. So at the base of the mountain, I immediately started looking for every philosopher or religious guru or, you know, theoretical Sherpa. You know, Sherpas are those people who take you up a mountain. I began to look for all these Sherpas from every corner of the religious world who promised and offered me impetus to get back to the top of the mountain. And then I tried every route. And none of them got me much further than the outcropping I've been on before. And each time I would roll back down to the base of the mountain, frustrated that I couldn't get back to the top as though I had ever been to the top. And then little by little, through the teaching of people like Henry Nouwen, especially Richard Rohr, Thomas Burton, a lot of the mystics in the church who didn't focus on doctrine and dogma but focused on experience begin to say to me in various forms and various and sundry ways, relax. This is not what it's about. And little by little, to use Rohr's term, as my palace of theology was devastated and torn by the tornadoes of life, I began to search through the rubble and piece back together a more humble spirituality that didn't demand exactitude and certainty and accuracy that was more concerned with humility and forbearance and love and curiosity and courage and honesty and gratitude and humility. And as I did, little by little, as Rohr said, you leave off with trying to rebuild the palace, in this sense, a theological palace, and you ultimately, at the base of the mountain, realize that this is a space where you can build a humble cottage for you and God to live in. And in that humble cottage, I can go to bed every night genuflect toward the mountain, be awed by its mystery, appreciate the fact that it's more vast than anything I could ever, you know, I could ever um, achieve and climb. And, and you go to bed peaceful. And the next morning I get up, and here's the interesting thing, I mountain climb more than I ever did before. I love exploring God, the existence of all things, creation, reality. I love exploring these concepts not simply in the theoretical now, but more so in the practical realms of theology. I love exploring these things, so I'm still a mountain climber. I go climbing on that mountain of God from every angle, every day, but at the end of the day, I really don't pitch a tent on the side of the mountain anymore. I come back down the mountain, and I live in the humble cottage with God, and I am at peace. And so, one of the central ideas that we have here, um, just reading from... Let's well, see, I had it a moment ago. This, this, uh, well, good night. Where did I put that? Who stole my sheet of paper? Oh, there it is. Grace Point is a progressive, inclusive, interdenominational church, and the, the second stanza relates to God. We believe that God, like life itself, is a vast and ever unfolding mystery, one to be explored and enjoyed, not feared. We believe that God, like life itself, is a vast and ever-unfolding mystery. We don't believe that the mystery of God is without disclosure. Christianity is very, um, is very committed to the idea that God is revealing and disclosing and interactive to some degree. And so there is an ever-unfolding mystery. As I've often said, the Greek word for mystery that Paul uses again and again is musterion. And musterion is different than 
our idea of mystery, a lot of time we think of mystery as that which is unknowable. In the Greek, in the classic and Koine Greek, the idea of mysterion was that the mystery is ever unfolding. And so mystery is not that which is unknowable. Mystery is that which is infinitely knowable. Think about the difference there. So mystery isn't something that we'll never attain. Mystery is something that is infinitely knowable. Like most of the disciplines of science, they are infinitely knowable, which simply means that you very well might get an answer to a question. We don't believe that there aren't answers to questions. But the reality is when you do get an answer to a question in this domain of God and isness and reality, when an answer unfolds, guess what happens? It opens up three new questions. You ever notice that? And so it's not unknowable, but it's infinitely knowable. And that's what Paul said when he said this mystery that is being revealed is glory to glory. It's ever unfolding, this beautiful mystery of God. And we're very committed to the idea that whatever and whoever God is, God is to be explored and enjoyed, not feared. And a lot of people within Christian circles cling to the, you know, the text that's in Job, Psalms, and Proverbs that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Well, there's a lot to be said about that. Even the Hebrew idea of that word fear is not a macabre, horrific thing, but more of an awe and a respect. But even leaving off with that, just think about what the text says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's interesting that the text does not say the fear of the Lord is the end of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But as you move through the trajectory of the Judeo-Christian scripture, you see the idea of fear reaching a point of diminishing return, and then in the person of Jesus Christ, there is a turn. And interestingly, Jesus never went around saying, I love you, though we certainly think Jesus loved people. Jesus never really talked a lot about, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you unconditionally. Jesus did over and over and over again say, fear not, don't be afraid. And ultimately, you come to the scariest book in the Bible for most of us, which is the last book, the book of Revelation, where all these seven-horned beings and all of these apocalyptic visions and, and, and just wild stuff and hell opening up and, and battles of Armageddon and blood flowing to the bridles of horses. And, and in that scary book, it actually opens with John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, having a vision, a supernal vision of God in Jesus Christ. And John said, when I saw Jesus in unveiled form, much like at the Mount of Transfiguration when the filters were taken off. John said, I was so awed that I fell down to his feet and I thought I was dead. And so here is this beloved disciple of Jesus who falls down at the feet of this unveiled Jesus and he says, it just, it, it, it killed me. I, I fell there as though I were dead. I fainted. I, I went unconscious. And that person John said, walked over to me, and instead of reinforcing the fear and the quaking and the quivering, he walked over to me and he laid his hand on my shoulder. And he said, don't be afraid. In that most scary of circumstance, the scariest of book, Jesus preaches his ultimate message to John in that moment of great concern for John and Jesus said do not be afraid and then he explains don't be afraid for I am the one who was dead and yet is alive in other words I am a wounded God I am a God who has entered into your place and I've experienced death I've experienced human life and I am 
a high priest, as the writer of Hebrews said, who's touched by the feelings of your infirmities. And as he stands there, John said his voice was like the voice of many waters. It was like an ocean crashing on the rocks. And his, his eyes were like fire. And his paps were girt about with fine linen. And his feet were like shining brass. John said, I can't even describe what I saw. It was beyond a three-dimensional world of colors and sound. And it so awed me that I fell down as dead. And Jesus had one thing to say to me. And it was, do not be afraid of me. So we are very convinced that God is mystery more than certainty. And yet a mystery to be explored and enjoyed. And we are very convinced that as 1 John said, love, when it fully matures, cast out all fear, not all fear except the fear of God, but John said when love finally reaches its fulfillment, its maturing, its maturation point in the human soul, it will cast out all fear, and that includes the fear of God. And I do believe the message of Jesus is that in God there is absolutely nothing to fear. So God, and I owe much of what I'm going to say to one of my um, religious heroes, and that is a fellow by the name of Marcus Borg that we lost a year or so ago, uh, a hero of mine who has been a pastor literarily to me and academically for a long time. Okay, let me see if I can say this right and kind of stir some thought, and then in about 15 minutes or so, let's talk amongst ourselves. At the heart of Christianity is God. I, I think without a robust affirmation of God, now, put on pause your definition or your supposed definition of what I mean by the juxtaposition of those three letters, G-O-D, but just follow with me for a moment. I think without a robust affirmation of the reality of God, Christianity does not make sense to me. Religion doesn't make sense to me. And, and just as important as that statement, I, I think, is how we see God how we think about God when we say the word God. So right now, just for a second, when I say God, I'm not, I'm not trying to be a psychiatrist with an ink blot, but kind of, a little bit. When I say God, what do you think? What emotions do you feel? Let's pause and do that exercise for a moment. Just forget about those around you and work with me here. I think this is important material. What do you think of what do you feel? What pictures do you see? What smells do you smell? How do you wrap your mind and your heart around the word God? God. I remember I asked that question a couple of years ago at Grace Point, and as I asked the question, people were silent, they were in the exercise, and a young woman began to softly cry. And I remember calling her out and asking her, what's going on? And she said, all I can feel is consuming horror. She tapped into what a lot of us grew up with. You remember that feeling? How we think of God, how we think of God's relationship to the world, how we think of God's character, all of these things matter greatly. In North American Christianity, and specifically the Christianity that I know in the United States, there, there are two very different ways of thinking about God, two very different understandings of God. To a large extent, 
one is an earlier paradigm and one is a developing paradigm, although I think the case can be made that both of these paradigms have always existed concomitantly in all the Abrahamic religions, but to some extent, one really is coming to the fore stronger than it ever has before. To use William James' generic term for God or the sacred, William James asked the question, and this is a question that I would put to you, and I think the answer would be affirmative or you probably wouldn't be here tonight. Is there a more? And by more, I mean a capital M more. Is there, James asked, a more? Is God real? This is the central question in modern Western culture. And in the United States, it's very interesting, though one might not think so, this question is affirmatively answered again and again and again because the Gallup polls, even as religious influence declines and church attendance goes down, it's interesting for the last 50 years when the question is put to United States citizens, do you believe in God, 95% of Americans over and over again consistently say yes, they believe in God. But it's really hard to know what to make of this figure because it seems clear to me that though 95% of the population believes in God, God does not seem to be the central passion of 95% of our population. And I don't say that as a judgment, but just as an observation. Saying that you believe in God without being concerned or passionate about God seems strange to me. What's also strange is that we are a part of the Occident or the West, and right now, our ancestors across the ocean while we're answering the question at 95%, um, in England, the figure is 35%. One out of three people in England say they believe in God. In some of the Scandinavian countries, the figure is even less. And so the question is, what accounts for this decline in the importance of God in the thought of Western culture? Central, I think, to understanding the question of God in the modern world is the notion of worldview, because our worldview is really our image of reality, our image or picture or understanding of what is real, uh, what is possible, if there is a more, if life is simply material and organic, or if there is an underlying reality that is beyond us. Colloquially, Colloquially, our worldview is our big picture. It's, it's really the way we see the world to be, but not only is a worldview the thing we see, it's also the lens that we see through. And there's no way around the fact that our worldviews are sociologically shaped and sometimes even biochemically shaped. We are, we are people within a community, a community of uh, culture and thought around us. And as Phillips Brooks was asked, the great Episcopal preacher, Brooks, why are you a Christian? He responded succinctly, I think it has something to do with a great aunt of mine who lived in New Jersey. What he was saying was, there is a reason that our friends in Bangladesh are not Christian. There is a reason that we are Christian. I, I didn't, in Northeast Arkansas, I didn't have a good chance of ending up Hindu. I'll just tell you that over in Paragold. There's not a lot of Hindu temples over there. So, we all develop our worldview, and there are two kinds of worldviews in every culture. Two primary ways of looking at life. One is a religious worldview, and will the other is a non-religious worldview. In a, in a religious worldview, 
to use James's term again, a religious worldview says there is a more. I may not understand that more, but there is a more. In addition to the visible world of our ordinary experience, in addition to the world that's disclosed and explained by science, James says there are some of us who just believe there is a more. There is a non-material layer or level of reality. There is an extra dimension of reality. There is something that some call God, some call spirit, some call the sacred, some call the infinite, some call it Yahweh, some call it the Tao, some call it the Brahman, some call it the Atman, and so forth. We have a lot of different names for it, but there is a sense in the religious worldview that there is a more. In the non-religious worldview that is claiming many adherents, there is only this. There is only the space-time continuum of matter and energy and whatever other natural forces lie behind or beyond it. As Stephen Hawking said that we just lost and it was a great loss for our world, Hawking said, when asked, do you believe that there is essentially a more? Hawking said, when I go to sleep the final time and biological cessation happens, it will be like the turning off of a computer and my life will only matter in terms of memory. But there will be no more me and whatever was me will dissolve into the ether. This is a non-religious worldview. And in the last three centuries, post the Enlightenment, these two worldviews have been colliding in Western culture. And it's really interesting to me, many of us within the Christian world, as we are trying to take science seriously and trying to reconcile science with religion, and many, like myself, believe that science and religion are actually trying to do the same thing, and that is point to the heart of what is reality. There are a lot of Christians who are trying to find peace between the religious and the non-religious worldview and trying to say that these things do not be, have to be held in such a harsh tension, that they are reconcilable. But within the religious worldview, which is ours, this is what I wanted to say to you and I would like us to discuss a little bit. And, and when people ask, what do you think of when you think about God? I think that's an incredibly important question to ask religious institutions and it's certainly an important question to ask of Christian people in a Christian church. How are we to think of the more? How are we to think of the unmoved mover or the ground of all being or the complete isness of reality or whatever you want to call it, God? How do I think of God? How do you think of God? In the history of Christianity, and this is really pressing right now at the fore, and it's pressing in our church. And it's pressing in a lot of our hearts. In the history of Christianity, there are two primary ways of thinking about God and the God-world relationship. In, in common with many other religions, these two concepts, I'm going to call one, and I'm not the first to coin these terms, but I want you to think about it. And I, want to, I want you to ask yourself, which of these two feel more real for you and which is the primary lens through which you look at God? The two concepts of God are supernatural theism and panentheism, not pantheism. Pantheism is the very Eastern idea that God is the sum total of all things. Panentheism adds a little E-N between pan, all, and theism, God. Panentheism does not say that God is the summation of all things, but panentheism says God is in all things. 
and all things are in God. God is more than all things, but all things are God. Everything, taking one of the laws of thermodynamics and physics, everything comes from an original source, and the original body of material through which creation came was the body of God. So everything is the substance of God, panentheism. One of the central themes of Karen Armstrong's, I think, very impressive book called The History of God is that these two concepts of God run side by side throughout the history of all the Abrahamic religions. Supernatural theism and panentheism, they were always there even in Christianity. Let me, de let me describe supernatural theism. This is the one that most of us grew up with. And it's one that I still feel, honestly, an emotional, if not intellectual connection to. Supernatural theism imagine God, imagines God as a person-like being. I've always said a grandfather in the sky, not a grandmother, has to be a grandfather, right? The Burl Ives looking figure, kind of the Santa Claus in the sky. Supernatural theism says God is a person-like being. God is an exceedingly superlative person-like being. God is the supreme person or individual or individuated identity in the world. And a long time ago, this person-like being, this, this someone with a name and a personality and a will and a body of emotions and intent and volition and consciousness, this person-like being some time ago created the world and all that is and established himself because almost always he is gendered male, though there were some that gendered the creator female. Most have always gendered the creator male. And so that person-like being created all things and in that became the creator. And so there was a creation and there was a creator. And the created world was something that was separate from God and other than God. And God and the world, God and the universe, the creator and creation are sharply distinguished. God is up in heaven, God is out there, we bow down, we look up. Even when we sing songs, there's this natural tendency to verticalize and look up. These are vestiges of a day gone by when we believe that there were three heavens. The first heaven was beneath the clouds, the second heaven was what we saw at night, and the third heaven was beyond the constellations, and that was the domain of God. Thus, rain was the tears of God, thunder was God moving furniture around, or bowling, or whatever it was, remember? God was up there and out there. It follows from this image of God that the God-world relationship is seen in interventionist terms. Prayer is petitionary and intercessory. We ask God to touch them. We ask, we beam our faith off of a celestial satellite and we leverage, we cajole, we enjoin, we manipulate, we encourage, we, in the old Pentecostal days, we even said we, we um, storm the gates of heaven and we ask God to intervene. And, and we ask God to intervene because we do not see God as really there already, but God is an interventionist that means from the outside, from up there and out there, God comes in to the difficult situation and spectacular events happen. 
and an interventionist view really is responsible for things um, even like Jesus, his birth, his miracles, his death, his resurrection. So supernatural theists generally affirm that God continues to intervene in this day, especially in response to prayer. Panentheism, the second way of thinking about God, and it is a very Christian idea actually and a very Jewish tradition. Although supernatural theism is all through the Bible, this one is too. It imagines God and the God world relationship differently. Though the word panentheism is only about 200 years old, the, the notion is very ancient. Rather than imagining God as a person-like being who's out there and up there and comes in upon being invited, instead of God being up there and out there, the concept of panentheism imagines God as the encompassing spirit. God is the encompassing spirit in whom everything that is, is. The universe is not separate from God, but the universe is in God. Everything is in God, but everything does not exhaust God. There is more to God than everything, but everything is God. Like the language of supernatural theism, this notion is in the Bible. One, I think one of the most beautiful places it's stated in the Bible is Paul in the book of Acts. Paul literally said, in him we live and we move and we have our being. Where are we in relationship to God? Paul was asked, we are in God. We live in God. There is no capacity to be separate from God. There is a major reformation fomenting within the Christian church today, and that major reformation revolves around this one point, and that is that human beings are born inherently separate from God. We believe, and I believe this is the budding reformation that is happening, we are beginning to be clear that not only do we not need to be reunited with God, we have never had the capacity to be separated from God. But supernatural theism lends to the possibility that God is separate, that God can go away, that we can go away, that somehow we can get away from God. And yet David, the great panentheist of the, of the Psalms, said the thing that I finally realized when I thought I was so separate from God was that if I would have made my bed in the deepest hell and if I would have spread my wings and flown to the farthest ocean, if I would have gone to the tallest mountain or fallen into the deepest ravine, I could not have gotten away from God because God is inseparably a part of all things. There is no getting away from God. So the concept of God as encompassing spirit, God is more than everything, but everything is in God. God is not only right here, but God is everywhere. So panentheism and supernatural theism, I personally do not believe have to be held up as a war by which we argue through and finally come to the conclusion that this is the proper doctrine. One is a very Western thought, one is a very Eastern thought, but the thing that I would like to posit here and offer to you is that there is no concept, whether it's supernatural theism or panentheism, there is no concept that fully captures the idea of God. But concepts like this, and these two are the prevailing ideas that have kind of made it through the sift of culture and time and intellectual thought, spiritual experience. 
these two ideas have come to the fore, and I actually think, as opposed to one of them capturing more perfectly the idea of God than the other, I think both of them point to a reality that God is beyond. And I think both of them point to something that they can't capture, and somewhere in the inarticulable tension that stands between these two, I think there is a reality that can be experienced. So for me, I am emotionally connected to the idea of God as a person because the best thing in this life for me is relationships with another person. And so because that is the most beautiful part of life, I can't imagine you know, the spiritual reality being less than this. But what I would say is, while I don't believe God is exactly a person like old man in the sky, I also do not believe God is impersonal. I don't believe God is just a cosmic force. I don't believe God is just the virtue of love. I think there is something very personal about, about God. And, and though I think it's beyond the Santa Claus in the sky idea, instead of saying God is impersonal, I would say God is transpersonal. Transpersonal says that God may not be personal, but it's not because God is less than personal, it's because God is more than personal. So when I believe that God is more than a being, I remember in the old Pentecostal days, Kenneth Hagin, or rather Kenneth Copeland, one of the faith teachers, Kenneth Copeland, I sat under his teaching for a while. I remember he so believed in the personhood of God that he spent a lot of time trying to claim the male gender for God, almost to the point of genitalia. He finally surmised, I have a tape where he surmised that God was somewhere between five feet 11 and six feet two. And there was this dimensional God. I think a personal view of God taken to an extreme can be misguided. But I think to impersonalize God is to miss the beauty of what God is. But at Grace Point, we believe Christianity holds at its center point the idea that life is gift, that there is a source that underlies all of this, and there is an ultimate isness, and there is a more. But we are not going to beat people up or send people to a burning hell because they have not climbed to the top of the mountain that is called the revelation of God. We are going to live humbly at the base of a mountain and come together and worship and clap and cry and laugh and explore the beautiful mystery that is called God. So when people say, what do you believe at Grace Point? We believe in curiosity, we believe in gratitude, and we believe that life is a gift and love is the point and God is the source and nobody can lay claim to the full perspective of what that means, this word that we call God. Can you say amen? All right, so let's do a little work here together. We got 10 or 15 minutes. <clears throat> um, since nobody's gonna be ostracized, supernatural Theism. Lean one way or the other. Panentheism, supernatural theism. Person-like or a cosmic wholeness. How many of you lean towards supernatural theism? How many leans toward panentheism? Holy mackerel. Well, that surprised me. That makes me rethink. I do think panentheism is wrong. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> One more time. Supernatural theism, person-like being. Panentheism, sum total, God, everything. Wow. Anybody care to 
elaborate or questions or thoughts about this. Uh, I love when Carol talks, so I want everybody here. That's super intimidating. <laughs> Put a microphone put in your face. Um, I think that there's a continuum there. And hmm. that I may have been more of one, and now I'm moving toward another. Not that that's better, but it's just opening. And the one you're moving toward probably is panentheism. You know, I think I am a panentheist more than a supernatural theist. And yet, my language of worship and experience is very supernatural theist. That's something, Steve, I realized about Rohr. Rohr is a panentheist, but he speaks in the language of supernatural theism. And I don't think that's a contradiction. Um, I really don't. Others? Anybody else? Yeah, growing up, I always thought of God as like my father. Of course, not everybody has a great father, but my dad, when we, I can remember back when we were three or four years old, you know, when he would lay in his easy chair and act like he was asleep, and we would crawl all over him, try and open his eyes, and he loved that. He just loved for us to be around him. And I always thought that that was what God was like. But I don't think we can really know. <laughs> it's nice that Bob just said, I thought that's what God is like. Remember, as and like, let's see, simile or metaphor? Simile. Simile, God is like. The great thing about metaphor is as soon as you say God is like, you are also saying God is not like, Right? To say God is like means God is not exactly, but God is like, which intimates. There are also some things about God that's not like that. And I think we didn't understand that. I also don't think we understood that all language is metaphor. No language fully captures. It's not just figurative speech that is figurative. All speech is figurative. If I eat some peach cobbler and say, man... I just had some great peach cobbler. I have not given you the experience of that peach cobbler. I have pointed to an experience that you will have to have. And so God is like, but God is not like. I remember Anna, our children's pastor uh, a year ago, she always had a, she had a shirt she wore a lot that said, I just met God, she is black. And it was attempting to be a double shock because minorities and marginalized have never got to lay claim to God coming in their form. Um, a couple of years ago, when Nina was 10, we were driving down the road, and out of the blue, I guess something had been said in Sunday school, out of the blue, she said, you know, I think if God came to the world today like he did in Jesus, he would come as a brown-skinned woman. And I said, what do you mean? She said, I, I mean like probably a Middle Eastern person. I said, well, why? Why would God? And Nina intuited that it would be making a profound statement for God to come as those who have generally been considered less than in order to make the ultimate affirmation that there are no less thans. I thought that was pretty intuitive of a 10-year-old, figurative. Others, 
panentheism, supernatural theism, the way we talk about God. Anybody have something to add in here? Yes. Here's the microphone. I think it's really more of a question than what I believe in. Mine is like, I was raised in Alabama, really Baptist, and so I... I can't tell through your accent. You sound like you're from (laughs) New England. (laughs) So I pray, so that makes me think, you know, of a being somewhere. Mm Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I see God in everything, like in nature and the sky, you know, and people and children and music. Um, so I think I'm not one or the other. I don't know if that's normal or a lot of people are like that. I think there is, I think most of us would agree, and Carol said it nice, it's a spectrum. It's yeah. not two I different poles. I love what she said about yeah. a continuum about, that's how I feel, because I, I kind of feel both. Like I'm in between. There's a word um, that means unspeakable or unutterable or undefinable even more than unspeakable, and that's ineffable. And Paul said that he had an experience where he, he went up into the third heavens. Now think about that. Paul used Ptolemaic first century science language and said he went up into the third heavens. Now, we know Paul didn't actually vertically go up into the third heavens because the third heavens don't exist. And yet it did exist as an incomplete scientific explanation of the domain of God, right? And so all language is incomplete, but it points. And it would be ridiculous for somebody to say, well, Paul really didn't have an experience because there's no third heavens and he didn't go up. He actually just transcended. It's like Jodie Foster, Matthew McConaughey. Remember the movie Contact? If you hadn't watched Contact, watch it from about 1998. She was going to go into outer space, but the reality is that space machine that she was in stayed right where she was, and she transcended to another plane because we're finding those dimensions are actually here. Now, we don't understand this completely, but Paul said he went up into the third heavens, and when he came back, he said, I saw things there that are unutterable. I literally experienced beyond the five, beyond the five dimensions capacity to explain. Um... I really messed up one time. I was trying to be alliterative in my preaching and I was talking about how God is so far beyond us. And I said, preachers are always speaking about the unspeakable, uttering about the unutterable and effing about the ineffable. And I thought, no, that didn't come out exactly right. But we are speaking about the unspeakable and we are, we are talking about something that's ineffable. And I. I do sense that God is in all things, and yet I sense something very personal and loving and close about God. And Van, you don't have anything to summarize this for us on? Surely you do. You're on the panentheistic side. You were the first one really that talked about this loudly among us. You want to close us out with some surmisals? Take it over to Van, and then we'll bring this thing home. Matt, why don't you guys come? We'll receive the offering after Van explains this to us. <laughs> well, certainly I am leaning toward panentheism, but, but that doesn't do it all. I mean, that still seems to me to be uh, woefully inadequate. Um, 
I did get beyond the separate God and that it's kind of as with regard to uh, personality by considering God in all things that when I consider the personality of God, I um, see all of you here. And I imagine all of creation that has ever been and ever will be as the personality of God. And I can't imagine how I could want for any more. Because I see creation as the creator. I suspect that if there is no creation, there is no more creation. If there is no more creator. Uh, with God being inherent in all things, I suspect if there is a need that a God would have, however that's described, it would be to be expressive and inherent and within and creating. So I think that's what we are all doing. Largely, and for the most of my life, that was probably being done ignorantly and with no understanding that that's what's happening. That the power of creative force is in you. Yes. Yeah. So Van, when Van talks, so there's supernatural theism, there's panentheism, and then there's pantheism. Pantheism makes creation the creator. That somehow it's embedded and beyond even oneness, it is sameness. So Van's language and there are some of you in this church, it's between panentheism and pantheism. Whereas most of us are between supernatural theism and panentheism. I still have a sense, this is, and this is why I wanted them to talk, I have a sense, and again, all of this is sense. And the biggest thing I wanted to show tonight, isn't it lovely that people with disparate ideas can fellowship the mystery of God with humility and equanimity and not have to kick somebody out and disfellowship them. Isn't that lovely? That's what so desperately Christianity needs to um, embrace and move towards. So let, let me say this and then we'll receive our offering and go home. Belden Lane, a contemporary Christian theologian, makes this point about language about God. We must speak about God, yet we cannot speak without stammering. Language about God stalks the borderland of the limits of language. It uses speech to confound speech, speaking in riddles, calling us to humble silence in the presence of mystery. This is why at the end of Job's experience, Job finally said, I will put my hand over my mouth. And when he put his hand over his mouth and became silent, that beautiful parable, that beautiful story says restoration and transformation began to happen in his life. And I love the fact that this church 
takes its hand off of its mouth and we can speak freely. I also love the fact that we are, in the strictest sense of the word, a worshiping community that knows when, and I hope we learn this even better, to put our hand back over our mouth and simply genuflect in the presence of mystery and that which is God with great gratitude. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and then we'll receive our offering and go home. Lord, sweet Christ, we thank you for this night. Thank you for our church. If we are to express anything to the lady or the fella in the elevator, we are to tell them that God is great mystery, that God is love, and that God is to be explored, not feared. We are to tell them that we fellowship the mystery that is God in the confines of our church. We not only fellowship that mystery, we celebrate it, we explore it, we live gratefully in our humble cottage at the base of the mountain called God. Now we pray these things, asking you to bless our church and asking you to bring other people. Surely there are hundreds and thousands of people in this Bible Belt town who need what is happening within our community and midst. May we reach them, may you bring them to us, and may we grow together, we pray in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. God bless you while you give.